Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants our souls to be watered with the rich stream of your living and active word. Speak to us now through the preaching of your word and prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it. Help us to not only hear with our ears, but to truly receive your word with faith and to respond with our lives. For we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, Romans chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 14 this morning. You can find it in, our, in your pew Bibles on page 948. So Romans 13, 8 through 14, we'll actually begin reading one verse earlier in verse 7. So here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. America has often been called the great melting pot because immigrants from many different nations have come here seeking the American dream and have found a welcome. The U.S. is not the first great melting pot because long before this country even existed, Jesus issued to his disciples what he called a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so the great Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren describes the impact this had on the ancient world. First, he describes the deeply divided state of that world. He says, when the words were spoken, the then known civilized Western world was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation, like the crevasses in a glacier, by the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are mere superficial cracks on the surface. Language, religion, national animosities, differences of condition, and status of all difference of sex split the world up into alien fragments. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and his master, the barbarian and the Greek, 
The man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulfs, flinging hostility across. But then McLaren describes how this world was transformed by Christ's command to his disciples to love one another. All over the empire, a strange new sense of unity was being breathed and barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Jesus Christ. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the uniting forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity and unnameable vices. It was only that the disciples were obeying a new commandment. And a new thing had come into the world, a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of a conqueror. The new commandment made a new thing, and the world wondered. We see how Christ's command brought about a radically new community in his church in the first century. And the church is still called to be community ruled by love for one another today. We're finally back to our regular sermon series through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we're picking up right where we left off here in Romans 13. And Paul is transitioning from his instructions on submission to the civil government back to exhortation to the Christian community by pivoting on this theme of paying what is owed. We're to pay the taxes we owe, but as we'll see, love is one debt that can never be exhausted. We can always love more. And from this topic of love, Paul will transition in the second half of our passage to knowing the present time, that we are in the time between the times, that while the darkness of this world is all around us, we belong to the kingdom of light of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we belong to Jesus and he is coming back, we are to live in his light. And that has radical implications for how we live now in this dark and sinful world. This passage wraps up Paul's general exhortations for the church in Rome. The next two chapters contain much more specific exhortations addressing a very particular problem that was plaguing the church at Rome. We'll cover our passage under two headings this morning. First, love one another. And second, because you know the time. So first, love one another. Paul concludes this section on submission to civil government by writing in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. And he transitions to the topic and continues, he transitions to the topic but continues with this theme in verse 8, owe to no one anything except to love, one, love each other for the one who loves another has fulfill the law. Now, before we focus on the main point of love, we should address one side topic that some people ask here. In saying, owe no one anything, does this verse forbid a Christian from taking out a loan? Now, some Christians have interpreted this verse strictly in that manner, and so refuse to take out 
a mortgage to buy a home or to take out a student loan to go to college. I don't believe that's the point that Paul is making here. We certainly should pay our debts, and if we do take out a loan, we should pay it on time and according to the contracted terms. Certainly to default on a loan, to not pay what you owe, would be to disobey this verse. Now, is it unwise to take out a loan? It may be. Proverbs 22.7 says, The borrower is the slave of the lender. But the wisdom of a particular loan is a different question. It depends on the circumstances, and that's to go further and further down a rabbit trail. But let's return to the main point that Paul is actually making here. His point is that we are to pay our debts, to not leave them outstanding when they come due. But he makes one exception here, because there is one debt that can never be paid in full, and that is the debt that we owe to love one another. As Origen writes, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but will never succeed in discharging. Clearly, Paul is speaking metaphorically here. He is portraying love not as a gift that we give, but rather as a debt we owe to one another. And that is appropriate because this is what God has commanded us to do. In fact, as Paul goes on to argue, this is the essence and the summary of the entire law. And in doing this one thing, we fulfill the law. I'm bringing up this topic of love. Paul is connecting back with the theme of the previous chapter, chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. If you recall back there, he wrote that love must be genuine within the Christian community. That is, it must be sincere, unfeigned, from the heart. As Paul continues his teaching here, although he doesn't quote from Jesus directly, he's undoubtedly drawing on Jesus' teaching. Christ taught that the whole law can be summed up in two great commandments. Matthew twenty two thirty seven through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now Paul is doing the same thing here as he quotes four of the six commandments from the second table of the Decalogue, writing in verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice how after quoting the commandments, Paul adds, and any other commandment. In these few words, he is including the whole of our moral responsibility toward others, the whole of the moral code embodied in the law that God gave his people through Moses. Yet he, yet he says, this can all be summed up in the simple command to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This should also strike us because of the other points that Paul has already made in this letter, as well as in the other letters he has written. He has made clear for the Christian the civil and the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant are no longer binding on the believer. In fact, he has gone so far as to write that we are not under the law at all, but under grace. And yet that does not leave you free to sin. 
Romans 6, 14 and 15, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Similarly, Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Though the believer has been released from the old way of the Mosaic law, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, the new way of the law of Christ. And that actually includes the moral law, which was part of the Mosaic law. The moral law is never done away with by Christ. If anything, it is strengthened by the example of Christ's love. And that's the second part of Christ's instruction. The first part is his summary of the law. And the second part is his example. He demonstrates what it looks like to love by his own life and example. He did this first when he humbled himself and he washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. It's then that he instructed them, saying, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. So he demonstrated it, but then he went even further, demonstrating the full extent of his love by laying down his life for us on the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The cross is the full extent of Jesus' example of his love for us as it serves as the example of the depth of this unpayable debt that we owe to one another. How could we ever pay this debt when we will be paying it for the rest of our lives? And though Paul doesn't bring up love for God here in this passage, we saw in our scripture reading earlier from 1 John 4 how the two great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, are intimately intertwined. If you love God, you must love others. In fact, you demonstrate your love for God by loving others. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. And so we see how love for God And love for neighbor must go together in a believer's heart and life. Paul brings this section to a conclusion in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the filling of the law. Rather than doing wrong or harm to a neighbor, love positively does good to a neighbor. Therefore, it fulfills the law. And here we must ask, What exactly is this relationship between the law and love? The Beatles famously declared in their hit single, all you need is love. If you have love, you don't need law. Just get rid of it. You don't need anything else. Just 
love. That's simply not true. The scriptures are saying that love fulfills the law. It keeps the law. The law, the moral law, not the full law of Moses, but the moral law that Christ still affirms, the law is still necessary. Paul is not saying that love is the full content of the law, but that it is a summary. That by focusing on love, we can keep the whole law. The law is still needed to instruct us in what love looks like. Love still needs to be shaped and filled with content. Love is not just some nebulous thing. It's not just whatever you feel like saying love is. Imagine a young couple who comes to you and says, sure, we're living together out of wedlock, but it's okay because we love one another and love covers all. The simple response would be, this is not love because it is a clear violation of God's law. Or another example, the young Robin Hood who is stealing in order to provide for his family. He says his stealing is motivated by love for his family. But again, it's not loving to disobey God's law. It's surely not loving towards those whom he is stealing from. Now here we could multiply examples. But the point is this. Love is a summary of the law. And through love we fulfill the law. But we can never divorce love from the law of God. So let us love. Love God and love one another. For love is the fulfilling of the law. Second, this morning, because you know the time. It's a major transition here in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Here Paul paints a picture of dawn approaching, with the sky beginning to cast off the darkness of night. It is still night. The dawn is approaching. What's the reason for this change from darkness to light? It's the fact that we are living in the last days. The time between the times. In between Christ's first coming and his return, which could be at any moment. And the day that is dawning is that final day that Paul often speaks of. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of his return. With each day that passes, his imminent arrival draws nearer so that you can always say, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. With each day that passes, Christ's return is one day closer at hand, even if we don't know when that day will be. But he has commanded us, be on your guard, be always ready, be watching for his return. For he will come at a moment when few are expecting him. And because the day is dawning, Paul calls us to wake up, rise from your slumber. And that means to avoid being conformed to the darkness of this present evil age. 
Paul says, you already know the time. And this serves as a motivation for the three exhortations that follow. And these three exhortations come in three pairs. The first pair is a command that uses the imagery of changing your clothes. Put off your old garments in order to put on something new. Verse 12b. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Of course, you're accustomed to changing uh, your clothes with the change from nighttime to morning. Take off your pajamas to put on your clothes for the day. Normally you would be ashamed to wear your pajamas to school or work. And I say normally because I know it's more common these days to go out in public in pajamas. Or perhaps to your Zoom meeting. But of course, the point is that the clothes of the night represent the works of darkness. The way this present world lives in sin. These you must cast off because you have a new life now in Christ. And you're not putting on ordinary clothes, a suit for work, or a school uniform. But rather armor to go into battle, the armor of light. Even though the darkness still surrounds us, we belong to the day. We fight for the kingdom of light, and our weapons and armor are spiritual weapons and armor. Now you all know Ephesians 6, where Paul speaks of putting on the full armor of God so that you can, sp- you can fight the spiritual forces of evil and stand fast in the evil day. And that's not the only place where Paul writes about the armor of God. Besides this verse here in Romans, we also have, where he addresses it, another parallel in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Of course, it's easy to say this. Clothe yourself with God's armor. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and righteousness and the helmet of the hope of salvation. But you ask, practically speaking, how do I do this? I believe that this is a task that is accomplished through prayer and meditation on God's word. It's already true that you have been saved and that you are protected by Christ and his spirit. But you need to be reminded of these things each and every day. You need these truths renewed in your mind and on your heart so that as this world presses in on you, trying to conform you to its likeness, as you face temptations and as the fiery darts of the evil one speed towards you, you have that shield of faith raised and ready for your defense. And if you don't have God's word hidden in your heart, And on your mind, and if you aren't regularly calling on his name in prayer, you won't be ready for the battle. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do so 
in prayer and meditation on God's word. Next, Paul writes in verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Walking, it's a common metaphor throughout the scripture used to refer to our daily conduct, our way of life. And here we see a contrast between two ways of walking. We're called to walk properly, decently, in a way appropriate for the daytime, for the light that is coming. As Paul also writes in Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. And Paul sets this in contrast to three pairs of behaviors that describe the way sinners walk in the darkness of night. There are many shameful things that unbelievers do under the, car, under the cover of darkness. The first two pairs describe blatant sins against God, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality. Clearly, these are things indulged in by those who dishonor God with their bodies. But the last pair, quarreling and jealousy, these may be especially targeted at the Romans, for it's directed at some more subtle sins, which nevertheless are some of those that are causing problems in the church, which Paul will be addressing in the next two chapters. Now, depending on where you are at in your Christian walk, perhaps you're not as tempted by these first four sins listed here, but still you must walk out, especially for those last two, quarreling and jealousy. Those can be temptations for us all. So let us walk properly as in the daytime, for we belong to the kingdom of God's marvelous light. And verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here Paul again returns to that imagery of clothing. And now you are simply to clothe yourselves with Christ himself. He writes in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To put on Christ in baptism is another way of speaking about our union with Christ, which Paul also wrote about in Romans chapter 5, having been transferred out of Adam and into union with Christ. Then in chapter 6, he wrote about being united with Christ through baptism into his death and resurrection so that we walk in newness of life. So we have been united to Christ through faith. We have put on Christ in this sense. But now he's taking, saying, take that one step further, to put on Christ in another sense, in the way that you live, becoming like him. So you belong to Christ, but now you must become like him in every way. That's what Paul's talking about here. And that's why he contrasts it with the opposite, giving in to your fleshly desires. And here he says, make no provision, make no plans, give no quarter, do not even think about gratifying the lusts of the flesh. We see a similar contrast between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now those verses are soon followed by the well-known passage on the fruit of the spirit. If you put on Christ, if you walk by the spirit, the result is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you give in to the flesh, the result is all kinds of wickedness and his ultimate end is death. If you trust in Christ, he will clothe you with himself, with his righteousness and his holiness, and he will bring you to eternal life. Let me remind you, the driving motivation behind this passage is that you must know the time in which you are living. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Sometimes the alarm clock goes off in the morning. And I know how it is. It shocks you. Awake. You're not ready to get up. And you'd give anything to hit that snooze button to roll over and go back to sleep. If you draw the parallels, what would that mean within this metaphor? That would mean to go back to the darkness of living in sin. Let this sermon be this morning like an alarm clock going off for you. Our situation is an urgent one because Christ could return at any moment and then the end will come. Will you be ready? Will you be living in the light when Christ, the light of the world, comes back? Will you be loving others as yourself, fulfilling the law of Christ? Or will you be still sleeping when your master arrives? When he comes in his glory with the clouds of heaven and the holy angels, there will not be time then to start preparing. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. So know the time and live in the light of Christ's coming. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks and praise at the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the light of the world. We thank you that he is the great light and that he has in his light revealed to us the way of salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would grant faith to believe, to trust in him for eternal life, and trusting in him so also to walk in a way that honors and pleases him, living lives of love, love for you and love for one another. Grow us in that love so that we might always be pouring ourselves out for one another so that the world would look upon us and see that we are your disciples and be amazed at the love we have for one another. Help us, Father, to know the time and to have that sense of urgency that Christ could return at any moment. 
And so we also pray, come Lord Jesus, we long for your coming and that day when we will dwell with you in the new heavens and the new earth. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.